0: Just a quick note about this episode. Due to the location of where this crime took place, we thought it would make it a little bit more authentic if we brought our friend CK from the podcast Mirths and Monsters to co host this episode with me. And if nothing else, we hope you get a kick out of his accent, because we sure do.
1: The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised.
2: November 24th, 1997, 21-year-old Tracy Wilde spent the early hours of the morning wandering the streets of Glasgow's Red Light District, the place where she met the majority of her clients. However, Tracy had no idea that the strange man who'd enlisted her services that night would be the last client she'd ever meet. Join me now as we take a look into the tragic
0: case of Tracy Wilde, a young mother driven to a dangerous line of work as a means of providing for her young daughter, a profession that would ultimately lead to an unsolved murder for over 20
2: years. Scotland is a land of beauty and ancient history that is both revered and appreciated by those who live within its bounds. But like many places in the world, Scotland, too, possesses dark streets that harbour deceitful people. In some places within this mysterious land rich in folklore, everyday people struggle to live out their daily existence, doing whatever it takes to survive. Bar is one such place that had fallen on hard times. A small neighbourhood, situated in the northeast of Glasgow, Scotland, with a population of only 7,000 people. Much of the neighbourhood was rife with poverty to a level considerably higher than the Glasgow average. Employment and education rates were low, and much of bar land was derelict and unoccupied. Its most notable point was the Red Road Tower block, a group of high-rise flats that stretched into the neighbouring district of Balornik, used extensively by filmmakers and photographers over the years. However, in twenty fifteen the flats were demolished as part of an ongoing effort to reduce the amount of tenement housing in the district, and an attempt to reinvent Barmalch as a more desirable place to live. But despite Glasgow's best efforts to improve its tougher neighborhoods, the citizens of Barmulloch still struggled and continued to face strife and violence every day. In 1976,
0: a 15-year-old girl named Faye, living in Barmolik, brought a baby girl into the world she named Tracy. With a small age gap between Tracy and her mother, the two were more like sisters than parent and child. At the age of three, Tracy was adopted by her grandparents to make things easier on both Faye and her daughter. Throughout much of her childhood, Tracy got along with her grandparents and was well-loved by her family and her young mom. But at the young age of 15, the relationship between Tracy and her grandparents became turbulent. Tracy had met a new boyfriend named Scott, and the two began making plans to rent an apartment together. Things got only worse when Tracy became pregnant. But despite her grandparents' concerns, when Tracy was 18, she moved into an apartment with Scott as they planned to give birth to their daughter, Megan, in a short time the relationship between Tracy and Scott began to sour. Tracy had become addicted to heroin, and when she wouldn't stop using, Scott felt like he had no other choice but to leave them.
2: Heroin officially hit Glasgow's streets in high quantities for the first time in the early 90s, with often young and vulnerable sex workers as its victims. In Glasgow, sex work was strictly policed, unlike in other regions like Edinburgh, where it was not only tolerated... But licensed in some places. Tracy's circumstances had made it difficult for her to find any gainful employment, and so sex work became what seemed like her only viable option. It was a dangerous choice, one fraught with potentially aggressive clientele and high-strung police. Tracy was desperate. After Tracy took to the streets, she still wasn't making much money, but found it was enough to provide for her daughter and still fund her drug addiction. Despite her troubled lifestyle, Tracy maintained her morals when it came to things she considered to be the important things in her life, and that was her daughter, always ensuring she was well cared for before putting money out for what had become an affliction. Tracy's colourful personality made sure she was well liked by everyone she knew. Her experiences had wisened her beyond her years, yet she maintained a quirkiness that endeared most people she encountered. At only 21 years of age. Tracy struggled but managed to survive, and she approached her work with the utmost professionalism, taking measures to ensure her safety and keeping her daughter away from the men she was meeting. But as careful as she was, Tracy couldn't possibly prepare for everything. In the early morning
0: hours of November 24th, 1997, Tracy headed out to work like she always did so many nights before. The city was quiet as residents peacefully slept in their beds, safe from the ominous darkness that had blanketed the sky. Tracy's daughter, Megan, was now three years old and walking, requiring much more attention than she had when she was a baby. That evening, Tracy hadn't planned on working. However, she was running low on cash and she needed to feed her daughter and was desperate for another fix. At around 3 a.m., she got dressed and set off into the night to see what work she could find. CCTV cameras captured her walking along the deserted Glasgow streets. Outside a drug crisis center on Glasgow's Wellington Street, Tracy was seen exchanging heroin needles with an unidentified male. After the man left the scene, a second gentleman suddenly came running to the spot where Tracy was standing. As the two seemed to strike up a conversation, they began walking at a view together. Around an hour later, Tracy returned to her apartment, but she wasn't alone. Her neighbor, Mary McCannamy, heard voices coming from Tracy's apartment at 4.40 a.m. and could later hear what sounded like an argument. The argument rapidly escalated to the point Mary heard Tracy screaming. After several minutes passed by, Mary waited with bated breath to hear what would happen next. Abruptly, the argument stopped, and the last thing Mary heard was keys locking the apartment and someone leaving. Mary assumed it was Tracy leaving her apartment and heading back out to the streets, but the truth was much more sinister. It wasn't until the following afternoon, when friends became concerned about Tracy. She hadn't answered the door to any visitors, and she'd missed an appointment at a regular support group. Around 5 p.m., one of the support group workers headed to Tracy's apartment. Unable to get inside, the worker knocked on her neighbor Mary's door for help. Noticing Tracy's veranda doors were open, Mary climbed across the partition separating Tracy's balcony from hers. And stepped inside the apartment. There, lying on her bed and covered in a robe, was Tracy. And she wasn't moving. Very soon, detectives descended upon the scene at Toryburn Road, beginning an investigation that would span 21 years. The clear bruising on her neck, combined with the fact that her body had been covered up, both suggested she'd been murdered. Furthermore, the Glasgow area had experienced a string of women being murdered involved in the sex industry dating back to 1991. Tracy Wilde was the sixth woman to be killed in as many years. An autopsy report soon confirmed that Tracy's cause of death was manual strangulation. Captain Dean T. Olson, a retired criminal investigator, explains how a crime scene can indicate what type of person committed the murder.
1: Well, in most cases, when you look at a crime scene, you can tell pretty much what happened because of the blood spatter and, you know, the disarray and, the, or if it's a really neat scene, but, you know, the FBI categorizes them as either an organized or disorganized scene. And when you're dealing with, the, they have one indicator called a one neat aspect, and it refers to the fact that for instance, uh, one case we studied in, uh, at the National Academy, he uh, dragged a victim into a bathtub where he could butcher her and you know, obviously not have a big mess. So on top of doing it in the bathtub where the blood and everything would run down the drain, he took the time to take out a clean towel and wipe the uh, edge of the bathtub. Now, An unexperienced or inexperienced investigator might say, well, he's trying to eliminate fingerprints. But an experienced investigator would look at that and recognize that's one neat aspect. And what it means is you've got a schizophrenic or a person with a mental condition, and for whatever demons are driving him, that's the neat aspect that he has to do. It's not rational, it's not something that he needs to do to commit the crime or even get away with it, but he will do it almost every time because he's driven by his mental illness.
2: The public was in outrage and demanded that this man be caught and arrested immediately. Nanette Pollock, who had led the sex-policing portion of the precinct for Glasgow in the 90s, recalled the period as turbulent and anxious. Citizens around the city believed it was a would-be serial killer. Nanette said that the people found this belief to be easier to accept that one man held full responsibility. The reality of the everyday violence women on the streets faced was simply not a pleasant one to focus on. A large-scale manhunt soon ensued with police questioning over 2,400 suspects, including a long list of clients they'd found in Tracy's diary. But they all led to dead ends. The only lead police had to go on was the foreign DNA and fingerprints they had discovered at the crime scene. Police were long on suspicions but short on leads. After two years, their investigation yielded no results, so they began looking closer to home turning their focus onto Tracy's remaining family members. Police began questioning Tracy's grandfather,
0: Thomas Wilde. They believed the close relationship he had with Tracy made him a suspect, even stretching it as far to accuse him of being sexually involved with his granddaughter. Police had been so desperate to find the killer that they idled on Thomas for a very long time before letting it go. But the mere act of being interviewed so often, not only strained his reputation in the community's eyes, people actually began to believe that Thomas was responsible for Tracy's death. But due to the sheer lack of evidence and suspects, Tracy Wilde's murder was officially labeled a cold case. Thomas Wilde, now widely believed to have been responsible, withdrew from the public eye. Megan Smith, Now missing her mother and relying on her great-grandparents as her sole source of comfort and support, watched her grandfather in despair as he grew more and more jaded day by day. As time crawled by, with still no answers and suspicion still on Thomas, things began to look bleak for Tracy's family.
2: It wasn't until 2013 that a review brought new information and a new suspect. The man in the CCTV footage was believed to be an Indian-born man named Sugat Mukherjee, a student at the time of Tracy's murder. Sugat had spent a brief period in Scotland as a student in 1996, only departing the country and dropping out of his courses following a mugging that took most of his immediate assets. His swift and sudden departure to India was likely what had drawn police attention. Sugat was arrested and held in 2014 for three weeks in a Mumbai prison. He was expected by many to have his court date set for an official trial, but that never happened. Despite many believing him to be guilty of Tracy's murder, Sugat was eventually released due to a lack of evidence. A false hope, a sense of unease as this new lead went dead as quickly as it appeared. And the Wilde family grew more depressed as it seemed Tracy's tragic murder might never be solved. On the 4th of July, 2018,
0: a 44-year-old Asian man was arrested for a minor assault in the Cowcaddens area of Glasgow. The man was a restaurant owner named Zeman Chen. When police took Chen's fingerprints, they made a startling discovery: his fingerprints matched the fingerprints found in Tracy Wilde's apartment 21 long years ago. Despite denying any involvement in Tracy's murder. His DNA also undoubtedly placed him at the crime scene back in 1997. And that wasn't all. It was soon discovered that Chen was a regular client of sex workers in the area. Far away from the city of Glasgow, Zeman Chen was born in China in 1975. After struggling through an impoverished childhood, paranoia about China's human trafficking problem... Drove Zeman Chen to flee the country. In 1995, at the age of 20, Z left everything behind and immigrated to Glasgow. It was there Zeman Chen finally felt safer, but it came at a price. Very soon, he began feeling isolated and alone and in desperate need of companionship. With no family or friends to rely on, Z began connecting with sex workers on a regular basis using the temporary intimacy and false sense of commitment to ease his troubled soul. Zeman Chen eventually found stability after opening up a takeaway restaurant in the Anniesland area of Glasgow. By the mid-2000s, it seems Z had forged a better life than he could have ever had in his home country. He also went on to get married and have two children. By all accounts, he seemed to be a model citizen. No one in his inner circle had a clue of what had transpired just a few short years before his big break. And at the start of his trial and the release of his identity into the world, as Tracy
2: Wilde's possible killer, he continued to plead his innocence. But something changed. During his appearance at the Glasgow High Court in April 2019, Zeman Chen pleaded guilty to the charges of murdering Tracy Wilde. He claimed he had sought out and hired Tracy for her services, but an argument had broken out between them. In a fit of rage, Z attacked Tracy and strangled her until she passed out. Z then panicked and fled the scene, locking the apartment door behind him. He claimed that he had choked Tracy because he was scared she'd inform police he was living in Glasgow illegally. Z insisted that after the attack, He believed Tracy was still alive when he left her. By the overseeing judge, the attack was labelled brutal and cowardly, who then told Chen, You proceeded to enjoy the prime years of your adult life in undetected freedom, including establishing a family and a business. Both Tracy's daughter and sister were both in attendance at the trial, and Xi avoided their eyes at all costs. After evading detectives for over two decades, Zeman Chen was finally sentenced to 20 years in prison. Finally, one of Scotland's biggest cold cases had been solved.
0: The time spent waiting, anxiously hoping for answers, was finally over for Tracy Wilde's family. But Z's sentencing only brought closure and relief to some, while Z's capture and identification as the real murderer took away the clouds of suspicion from Thomas, Tracy's grandfather, he never got to see it take place. Thomas Wilde died two years before the real killer was ever found. Scott Smith, Megan's biological father, who had stayed in contact with Tracy after their split, had taken her death extremely hard throughout the years and also died without ever knowing who Tracy's real murderer was. The same went for Tracy's mother, Faye, who died two years before Z was identified. Three loved ones, who spent 20 years in agony, praying for justice and a swift end to their suffering, never witnessed the justice they so deserved. It fell on Megan, Tracy's daughter and her other surviving family members, to witness the trial firsthand and see with their own eyes. The man who
2: had so heartlessly taken Tracy from them. As for Sugat Mukirji, the original suspect behind the murder, Z's arrest and conviction came too late to make much of a difference in his life. Despite providing a DNA sample when he was taken, Sugat had never truly been cleared of any wrongdoing. Before Z's discovery, Sugat saw his life collapse before his eyes. He and his wife lost their apartment lease, and Sugat's successful business disintegrated. His three children had virtually no friends. For nearly five years before the conviction of Z, Sugat and his family watched their lives fall apart. Even after it was over and done with, they admitted what had been done to them was not repairable. Sugat's depression was deep, and even the news of his exoneration couldn't lift it.
0: Tracy Wilde's case is an example of how far-reaching the devastating fallout can be from an unsolved murder. Clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Forzani explains possible psychological effects of being falsely accused.
3: The accusation that this case insinuated was that the murderer hired a woman for sex before he murdered her, which complicates the emotional parts even further. Imagine having a supportive spouse, children who look up to you, a prosperous career, and then starting to lose business be unable to pay your bills, and feel like your friends, family, and your community might be questioning whether or not you committed the crime, when you had never even in fact met the victim. When he learned that he was a murder suspect, he slowly lost so many aspects of his life and began to have multiple mental health issues, including anxiety, depression, and insomnia. The accused became so depressed and anxious that he could no longer attend family gatherings, and he was embarrassed to apply for jobs after losing the one he had held for years. He and his wife and children were unable to remain in their leased home, as the landlord didn't feel comfortable with the situation. Mr. Mukherjee may have known that despite his family standing by him, some may be wondering whether he was covering something up. Even when he was found to be innocent and in no way connected, it isn't as if his life just went back to normal. The impact of having been treated like a criminal of this caliber continues to have severe financial and emotional impacts. Recovering from depression isn't simple and it sometimes takes years of treatment. And now he also has to cope with the financial and other practical aspects of having been a suspect.
0: The conclusion of Tracy Wilde's murder investigation restored hope to countless people who had lost loved ones under similar circumstances. Sadly, homicides involving women who work in the sex industry are notoriously difficult to solve. Captain Dean T. Olson explains why this can happen.
1: The primary reason for that is the sex act itself is illegal in most cases, and so they have to go to some place secret or private away from the police. And so they're kind of tailor-made for a, a guy that wants to kill a prostitute because they're going to go to a secluded area where he can do that without being seen. And uh, prostitutes, uh, you know, a lot of times these guys won't necessarily kill a prostitute. They might have killed before, they'll kill afterwards, but sometimes they let these people go with a meeting or whatever. But prostitutes are unlikely to call the police for that same reason, because they're engaged in illegal activities. So it's kind of a tailor-made profession. They're a victim that's easily accessible. Uh, You really don't have to search them up. They're they're classified as what they call high-risk victims because they're in the sex industry. They're selling themselves. And so they put themselves in harm's way because they're going up to strangers they have absolutely no connection with which makes it extremely difficult to solve because most murders are solved because the people closest to you are the ones most likely to kill you. So police officers, detectives originally look close to the victim. Who, you know, is it a husband, a brother, father, whatever? Somebody very close usually is a perpetrator. But in the case of a prostitute, uh, there's no connection. There's no family connection. And basically a stranger shows up, pays for sex, kills the, the woman, gets away. And how do you make a connection? Because it's a stranger killing another stranger. I remember Gary Ridgway, the serial killer, I think they call him the Green River Killer out of Seattle, Washington area. I don't remember how many prostitutes he killed, but he concentrated mainly on prostitutes for that reason. They were easy to pick up. Uh, He could take them to a secluded area. You know, they're, they're kind of a disposable victim because uh, family members uh, no longer have a lot of contact with them. So if they're missing for two or three weeks, nobody pays attention. Their pimps are not going to call the police and say, hey, one of my uh, hookers or prostitutes is missing because obviously they're involved in an in illegal activity. But uh, yeah, he uh, had a criminal career that spanned, um, I believe it was 20 years.
0: Throughout the years, as Tracy and other women like her had their lives brutally taken from them, the public eye gradually opened to what a violent existence these women braved and public awareness grew. The memory of Tracy Wilde lives on in those who knew her in life, her siblings, her daughter Megan, and the many friends who remembered her as a quirky and loving woman who went to great lengths to provide for her child. Megan will never forget the brave, doting, and loving person who proved a mother's love is as fearless as it is boundless. I'd like to give a special thank you to Dr. Christina Forzani and Captain Dean Olson for their insights on this case. To learn more about Captain Olson's 30 years of experience in law enforcement, you can find his most recent book, Evil Desire, Recollections of a Sex Crimes Detective on Amazon, or Genius Book Publishing. You can also find a link in the episode notes. And now I'd like to share a quick conversation I had with the co-host of this episode, C.K. CK, I just want to tell you what an amazing job you did, and I kind of think you should start your own true crime podcast.
2: Oh, well, thank you to the first part, and definitely not to the second part. It was interesting, actually. It was really interesting, because I've only listened to them before, obviously, but when you're actually reading the words and studying the words and getting them right and all that kind of thing, it sort of hits you a bit more. I think that's possibly another reason why I couldn't do it. Just, oh boy, this this is sad.
0: We thought you did an amazing job, and quite frankly, I couldn't have said Bar as well as you did. Thank you.
2: (laughs) It does help when you're a native. I've got the natural phlegm, I guess it is. (laughs) So you've got a couple podcasts, and why don't you tell our listeners about them? Thank you, I will. Okay, so I have two. One is for everybody. It's a family-friendly podcast, which has just turned three, actually, called Mirth's and monsters. And it's um me, my dog, and three of my cats go investigating cryptids and monsters and associated things. So the first episode is about the haggis, which is a real creature and a real beast, and I know how much you love haggis as well. We've also went to see Nessie, we've interviewed Wolfman, the mummy... You get the idea, so... Actually, the whole
0: family listens to the podcast whenever we get in the truck and we're off driving.
2: That made me very happy when you told me that before, actually, because that's sort of what I was aiming for when I did it in the first place. And I like the idea of folks just sort of gathering around, listening to it together, which you can do with Mercy Monsters. Infernal Souls? Maybe not so much for the kids. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so the second one is called Infernal Souls and Eternal Arseholes. The first series is just finished, actually. It was set in Alcatraz, and the host of it is a character called Charlie the Bagman Baglin, who's actually dead. He's a ghost who still haunts around Alcatraz, and you learn about previous inmates. So I've covered Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, those kind of folk, but you also learn about Charlie's history as well.
0: All right, so we're going to run the promos for the shows, and thank you again so much for your help
2: with this episode. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. I was I was genuinely honoured to do it. <laughs> Hello, my friends. I'm CK, the host of Mirths and Monsters, the show that tells you the real stories behind such creatures as the Haggis, leprechauns, werewolves, and, of course, Nessie. Join me, my dog Finn. He doesn't talk. My wee cat, Ray. Puny mother. She does, as we investigate these and more on Mirths and Monsters, available wherever you listen to your shows. Sláinte, my friends. Alcatraz opened in 1934. I arrived in 1935. And I'm still here. I'm Charlie the Bagman Baglin. And I'm dead. Tune in every fortnight to hear about some of the nastiest inmates the rock has had. Learn about Alcatraz, about me and the fun I have with ghost hunters. I'm behind I'm you behind baggage. you baggage. Episode 1 is about Al Capone, the band you play in Tax Dodging Numpty. Join me, Charlie, from the 6th of October on Infernal Souls and Eternal Arseholes. Available on ACAS, Spotify, and most other podcast players.
0: The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspodcast. Pod. And finally the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecordscomau records.com.au slash G E.
2: at
1: my door. I they can't get in cause
2: I'm not I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I heard they can't get in cause I'm
1: not prepared to run